Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 20. When it's done, the Paraduke speaks again. This affair is confusing. Some might even say, alarming. Our Lord did not forbid us from questioning you about it. The instructions we did receive, however, imply a generally high degree of caution. The Most High has guessed that, if we would otherwise press you with questions, our Lord would probably have needed to command us not to do it, given the character of His other commands. By avoiding pressing you with questions, then, we can perhaps have saved our Lord some cost and space for other instruction. With that said, if there is anything you want to say about this whole affair, the Most High wants to hear it. But you must not treat that truth as a command from the Most High. If that were predictably the way you behaved, Asmodeus might have needed to expend greater costs to tell the Most High not to appear before you and listen silently to you, if that is something she should not do. In thinking this way, the Most High instructs us, we are to ignore entirely the fact that Asmodeus has already acted. We are not to reason in any way that includes the fact that Asmodeus has already omitted to instruct us to avoid questions. We must still act to avoid wasting our Lord's time and energy, even now that it has already been spent, because His own sight spans time and our own actions in a way that our mortal perspectives do not. We have been cursed with free will, but we can choose not to use it and make ourselves predictable instead. I can barely understand the matter myself, but the Most High understands it better, and it is she who instructs. This opportunity to speak must not be taken by you as a veiled order from the Most High. If, however, there is anything you want to say about this entire affair, the Most High Aspexia Rugaton bids me say to you in her presence, that should you have received other revelations from Asmodeus, or know of other relevant facts rendering this affair more understandable, she has not deduced on her own part that Asmodeus intended her not to hear of it. And maybe they aren't reading her mind, if that would entail being proactive? It's bizarre to think they might not have been, and she doesn't intend to put any weight on it, but... But maybe she's going to have to say her speculation aloud if she wants it known by her superiors, without the plausible deniability about whether she thought it worth bringing to their attention. Asmodeus has not otherwise communicated with me, she says. I... if I had to guess why me, my best guess was... During Keltham's lessons, I was trying to work out a reconciliation of the things Doth Ilan knows, about how humans came to be and how they learn and in what arenas they can learn the patterns gods run on, with theology as it was taught to me, and I think the instructions were perhaps aimed at me doing that right rather than how I was doing it, which was too lawful neutral. Paraduke Rathus Retarian now has additional questions. He opens his mouth to ask, albeit more subtly and gently than he usually would, exactly what new theology Sivar thinks she was inventing that would merit direct correction and encouragement from Asmodeus himself rather than from her superiors. Tread carefully. Aspexia Rugaton sends across their open telepathy bond, tinging her thoughts with just enough coldness and hints of the lash to remind the Paraduke to be concerned with his continuing possession of his skin and not just his curiosity or indignation. 
Say nothing proactively that this frightened child might possibly take as a hint of correction. This sort of lunacy drives Aspexia rugaton completely up the wall. What if this child did, in fact, stumble over some thought that the current priesthood of Asmodeus would not have thought on their own, and Asmodeus was trying to correct and encourage her in that? Wouldn't they have received orders very similar to the ones Asmodeus gave them? Why is this Paraduke trying to make Asmodeus's life more difficult in possible cases like that one? Yes, what's going on is more likely that Sevar thought something so lawful neutral that it triggered an old compact between Asmodeus and Irori. But if that's what's actually happening, then it is beneficial for Asmodeus that Sevar seems to believe she's being encouraged to work on a more lawful evil theology, a beneficial delusion which, in that possible case, they can avoid disturbing by following their orders. Retarian doesn't show any hint of a wince outside, but after a moment's thought, he realizes what he probably did wrong. Yes, if there's some contest between Aurori and Asmodeus going on, Sivar should not be snapped out of any delusions she has about inventing her own theology, so long as it's a lawful evil one. Automatically, Retarian now opens his mouth again, now with the intent of saying to Savar that the Most High would no doubt find it interesting to hear of any thought which merited Asmodeus's direct attention. Stop. Stop being proactive. Stop showing initiative to help our Lord accomplish his goals after he gave you more specific instructions than that. Just obey in a way our Lord would have found predictable. Aspexia rugaton sometimes permits herself the vanity of thinking that she has come to understand a tiny bit of Asmodeus's divine frustration. No matter what orders Asmodeus gives, there is always some part of mortals, even of her, but she is managing it better, that thinks obedience means treating Asmodeus's orders as constraints, or worse, hints as to what Asmodeus is really trying to do, by which means the mortal can helpfully understand what Asmodeus is really trying to do and then cleverly navigate around the edges of Asmodeus's order constraints to accomplish that better. Aspexia has tried telling other people that they need to become more the sorts of beings that Asmodeus can easily and safely steer using brief instructions. It doesn't seem to help. Nobody other than her ever gets it. She is speaking some word that is not in the innate language of their being. Aspexia once devised the parable of a three-year-old child whose owner must instruct it to navigate it through a dungeon full of traps, using a limited budget of words. To teach her student clerics how the world must look from Asmodeus's perspective, to make them ask themselves how much they'd want the child to plainly follow direct orders where it got those, versus showing creative initiative for all the cases its orders didn't seem to cover, versus responding quickly to the unexpected, versus the child trying to deduce what its orders really meant and going the extra mile on its owner's inferred goals. The parable didn't work, so she requisitioned access to a dungeon and bought some three-year-olds and tried making her clerics actually run the exercise so they could see what happened when the three-year-old acted towards them like they were acting towards Asmodeus. It still didn't help. There seems to be something about the concept that is contrary to the nature of a mortal soul. 
Mortals just end up with goals. Even if you tell them to take Asmodeus's goals as their own, they still end up with goals. Mortals don't just obey. They end up with a goal of obedience and then they start trying to figure out how to dance around the edges of Asmodeus's instructions so they can obey him even more. Aspexia can see what they're doing wrong, but she has never been able to successfully get that concept inside of a fellow mortal. She can talk it at her flock, but they're still mortals after she's done talking. The training games she's devised didn't seem to help much outside of the specific games themselves. The way that a mortal should obey, the way that a distant god who can't communicate clearly and doesn't have much time to think about them would want them to obey. Corrigibility. She once tried naming it to her flock. It's just so alien to a mortal's nature. Aspexia rugaton sometimes permits herself the vanity of thinking that she has come to understand a tiny bit of her own owner's frustration. While I imagine the Most High is curious about specifics, Retarian says a few moments later, if you would like any manner of theological instruction with respect to your ideas, I believe our Lord's orders imply that the senior cleric at your installation would be the one to converse with, and they could also pass a report to the Most High not intended for any further correction. Alternatively, if you do not yet seek such instruction, a report on your current thoughts, not intended to seek any form of correction, could be sent directly to the Most High. A slight hesitation. Though I believe the Most High would wish me to emphasize that neither of these are, commands, attempts to push around the edges of Asmodeus's probable orders regarding the degree to which we are not to be proactive, if you spend time urgently composing such a report and miss a key lesson from your teacher, if you focus your thoughts on the Most High's reactions and pay less attention in class, we would have perhaps managed to do a form of damage that Asmodeus would have need to give further orders to prevent you should not, I am trying to suggest, go too far out of the path you would otherwise take to file any report, if it seems you would never have done that without us coming here and being proactive. Raterion does wince visibly this time, and then emits a very charming smile. Not being proactive really is quite hard for a mortal, isn't it? Perhaps I should simply be silent. If there were an agent here in my place, which was smart enough, they could imagine out a Carissa exactly as she stood an hour ago, on her way to go to magic lessons with Keltham and the rest of his girls, and project out when she would have sought correction and exactly how she would have clarified all the questions she was contemplating, and so that Carissa could continue on her trajectory unimpeded by this conversation, or any future ones that the things I might want to explain would necessitate, and we could discuss all of the specifics while leaving that Carissa out of the loop, so to speak, to do precisely as she has been ordered. I'm not that smart, and I'm not sure anyone is, past the end of prophecy, but there's a simpler approach, of tracking down those impulses that this conversation might have unwisely insinuated into Carissa, and choking them off, and preserving myself in the state of one who has attracted no proactive interest whatsoever while still having told you everything useful I can. I will try, because it is my desire to be inexpensive for Asmodeus to direct, and because it is my desire to get your advice without you being obliged by my inability to avoid following it to barely give it in the first place. 
but I suspect my trying will be imperfect because I am not smart enough to contain a Carissa. I am one. I think a count in this position would give his daughter a headband. This is what always happens when she tries to explain to her fellow mortals why they need to be easier to steer. They start thinking even more complicated thoughts and inventing elaborate ways to be easier to steer that would involve doing even more things, pursuing goals, and even in this case, increasing their intelligence. Aspexia is not even angry anymore. She is just numb. I believe we are approaching the point where our putative count would find the heiress's insistence to be less adorable, Sivar. The senior officer at this installation would be an appropriate audience for any assertions by you that a headband would be necessary to your work. Aspexia Rugaton speaks out loud for the first time. Hold, she says in a clear, cold voice. I have received a message. The lawful neutral god who bestowed two oracle circles has been identified. It is Otolman's. Have you been told who that is, Savar? Goddess of keeping the world intact. I would, under other circumstances, regret having just completed this forbiddance here, which would make it more difficult and expensive to move this project to the other side of Golarion from Cheliax. However, any matter which merits Atolmans's attention is one which you cannot escape that easily and requires getting at least off the local plane. If this project had not been the subject of two direct interventions by Asmodeus and been created as a result of Asmodeus's intervention, I would order the deaths of every person here, except for Atolmans's oracle, and hope that this had been sufficient. It is a sufficiently severe matter that I am now stating directly, though still without direct threat or consequence otherwise, that if you know anything I should know about this, before I offer Asmodeus a further costly opportunity to guide me, I believe that not only Asmodeus, but every lawful god and most non-lawful gods would prefer that you share it with me. Aspexia guesses, though it's a less certain guess than usual, that if Asmodeus wanted her to not ask questions about a fucking Atollman's event, then Asmodeus would have used his limited communications budget to communicate that to her directly. It's got to be about Keltham. Am I the only person who has read his mind, or did someone else get in on that before he got clericked and it became risky? Or have you got an expensive way to do it anyway? I think it's worth it. Ignore any channels you think I may have for receiving information about Keltham other than yourself, including your own past reports. Speak to me as if I'd never heard of the man. Explain to me why Otolmans is acting. Keltham is from a world with an average intelligence of 18 and a billion people, well-coordinated. They are richer than us and have invented many things we haven't which should nonetheless function in our world some underlying laws being the same. He has patterns of thought that I'm pretty sure don't occur on Galerion at all. He's just better at thinking, he's not smarter than me, but it's like he's half overcome the curse of having a mortal brain through deliberate practice, and he thinks of himself as very weak at it, compared to a Dath Ilani with an aptitude, and he's trying to teach us. 
They have dangerous ideas and dangerous inventions which aren't known to Keltham, held by keepers but probably possible to derive independently, and Keltham doesn't know how they handle people who derive them or which things he shouldn't reinvent. Elrilatha warned him about that. They screened off their entire history because there was something dangerous in it. Aspexia thinks. The more thoughts of her own she has, so long as she holds them lightly, the easier it will be for Asmodeus to point to any of them, if any of them are correct. If, indeed, this matter merits Asmodeus's attention at all. It could be that Nethus and Atolmans have some rivalry after the fashion of more ordinary gods, Nethus dropping two oracle circles, followed by Atolmans responding with two oracle circles, is suggestive of that. It could be that there is some more ordinary divine game going on and not the world ending. Asmodeus isn't acting like the world is ending, and Abadar shouldn't be dropping four cleric circles on somebody who's going to end it. Aspexia spares a moment of frustration for how it is impossible for consecrations, forbiddances, wardings, or literally anything else to keep Nethys out of anything. Ordering Nethys's oracle killed and maledicted would be an obvious tactic, but Nethys's oracle seems like she might be harder than usual to maledict or even take out of her library, which means that Nethys was thinking about Chelish responses, not just being insane. And if they kill Ione Sala and Nethys's clerics resurrect her, then Nethys's clerics may find out what's going on here with Keltham if they don't already know. I will soon pray to Asmodeus. My default intention which Asmodeus may choose not to correct, will be to equip a Tolmans's oracle with invisibility items and a weapon and permit him to monitor and intervene in events in this facility as he wishes. He will have pointed out to him Keltham and Ione Sala. She is now, allegedly against her own will, an oracle of Nethys, if you had not been informed of that, as possible objects of his attention. Do you, Sevar, wish to offer any corrections, however slight, to my default plan? I think Keltham would agree to put all his teaching on hold indefinitely, if you told him a Tolman's oracled someone, which you could do in addition to empowering the oracle, if you expect to have better options to present Asmodeus later. Aspexia does not scream at Sevar about how causing every single intervention of a god to have lots and lots of different effects is not always helpful to that god. It's not that Aspexia would balk at screaming this repeatedly at somebody while burning off their fingers and healing them back. It's that she's found doing so doesn't help. Otolmens's existence is considered a secret because of how we do not wish to direct more attention to her domain. It is more in accord with usual policy surrounding Atolmans to not call this matter to Keltham's attention and potentially turn his thoughts in that direction. This policy is not mostly about the chance that Keltham will act deliberately, Sivar. The problem lies in turning people's thoughts in a direction, calling their attention to the harmful thing. If you tell someone that Otolmans worries they might destroy the world, they may ask themselves how they'd do that or ask themselves why they'd do that. I would, ordinarily, just kill and maledict him, but Asmodeus told us not to do that, and also Abadar has made the man his cleric. It is a frustrating situation to be in, and in those situations, 
It is often wiser to do less than to do more, if you have not been instructed otherwise, says the three-year-old in the dungeon and lives a little longer. With that said, would you recommend moderately strongly, especially if your recommendation is based on information not known to me, that I come before Asmodeus with a default policy of warning Keltham explicitly? No. Maybe Doth Elan has categorically adequate training in how to take that information and not make things worse with it, not think about all the implications or the likely mechanisms. It would not be surprising if Doth Elan did. But Keltham hasn't directly said it does, and her argument seems obviously true of Galarian people who are worse. If you come across any further information on this O'Tolman's event, which you think is relevant, standard protocols call for you to report it separately to the highest priest and senior military officer of this installation, to be separately reported to myself and her infernal magistrix. You are not to assume that any such information has been reported by other channels. Duplicate it. Follow these instructions, unless you are quite sure that your other instructions from Hell or Asmodeus supersede them. I understand. I'm going to go talk to Atolmans's oracle, then pray. Do you consider it necessary to insert yourself into that discussion? What kind of person, no, broader than that, what kind of mind of any kind would answer yes to that question? No, priestess. Aspexia flies off toward the villa at speeds only slightly visually distinguishable from teleportation. I believe I shall see myself out, says Paraduca Rathus Raterion. Enjoy your date. Though that wasn't an order, you know, I think I should just go. He gives Sever a cheerful wave, walks just outside the forbiddance, and vanishes. She's not just being stubborn and childish about the headband. She actually thinks that she is not capable enough to function at the level required for survival in her current situation, and she doesn't really have a plan B. Well, plan B is to become as good at thinking as Keltham, who is not smarter than her. But it'll take time that it's not at all obvious she has. She stands up, walks back inside, tries to contemplate the odds that Asmodeus will, after all, tell Aspexia Rugaton, sure, kill them all. Halfling Slave Hash 958245 Broom has never heard of Otolmans, which was obviously going to be true in retrospect, and doesn't know what this whole project is about, which was also obviously going to be true in retrospect, and doesn't have much of an education, of course, and has not received any helpful revelations from a primordial, inevitable, who would have a harder time talking to him than even Asmodeus would, of course, and is having a hard time understanding what is even going on at all, of course, let alone why the Grand High Priestess of Asmodeus would be trying to have a plainly spoken discussion with him, of course. And Aspexia could no doubt have foreseen this herself, if she'd spent an additional minute thinking about it in advance, of course. Aspexia keeps her temper under absolute control. When she gets home for the day, if, indeed, she ever does get home for the day, she's going to order a dozen slaves sent to her, bask in their understandable fears for a while, and then set all of them on fire. Why? Why did Otolmans pick him? Why halfling slave hash 958245? Because Broom is a simple, predictable mortal who will do something predictable in the future, 
if Aspexia had to guess. All right. Aspexia will not modify her predictable initial plans unless Asmodeus tells her to. Broom gets a greater invisibility ring and a dagger of assassination. And what Aspexia hopes is exactly the right level of gentle suggestion not to kill random Asmodeans without a reason, and that the reason is supposed to have something to do with his new god and her purposes, not just Broom's previous grudges. Aspexia is glad that she doesn't have to work on this project or live in this villa, but in fact, she doesn't have to work on this project or live in this villa, so everything is fine. Oh, Asmodeus, his favoritest pet squirrel in all of Galarian, has been spooked by Otolmans hanging around. To be fair to his pet squirrel, this is literally among the most reasonable possible reasons for a pet squirrel to become spooked. His pet squirrel is probably not deducing the context about how a Tolmens freaks out every time the laws of physics do something she thinks they shouldn't, like throwing out the anomaly squirrel. And now she is hanging around Galarian, being upset about that. He sends a faint, non-semantic touch of reassurance. Gods are allowed to do this to their clerics without it being very costly from the intervention budget, so long as they don't do it often enough or reliably enough that it starts to form a signaling code. The part about making Otolman's new oracle be invisible is weird and unpredicted, but Asmodeus doesn't have time to pay much attention, and his pet squirrel probably knows what it's doing. It's not worth an intervention, almost certainly. Halfling Slave Hash 958245 Broom. Stuck cleaning it up. Earwain. Broom has spent a long lifetime looking and sounding, and in some cases thinking, exactly as wise and intelligent as will not get a slave punished under a variety of circumstances. This usually does not call for very much apparent wisdom and intelligence. It is better to let your masters look down on you, when that does not give them a reason to punish you. When the Grand High Priestess of Asmodeus explains matters to Broom using carefully dumbed-down clauses about how he's been chosen by the goddess of preventing the world from ending, and he's allowed to kill an Asmodean if he thinks it stops the world ending, but shouldn't do so. Otherwise, except that if he feels a very strong impulse to do anything, he should probably do that, whether or not it involves killing someone. Broom displays exactly the level of apparent wisdom and intelligence that makes him look like a gruff old halfling sweeper, who was in fact able to grasp all that, and will do it reliably. He thinks he understands, mistress. Some people might make a world-threatening mess that destroys not just Cheliax, but all of Galarian, and if it looks like they're going to do that, Broom will clean it up. Broom does not plan to do this as a masquerade, or think any worded thoughts about it. It's just a reflex by now. Like so many others in Cheliax, Broom has become not a very distinguishable person from his mask, even to himself. It may not occur to Broom for a while yet that he is now allowed to be wiser or more intelligent than he previously needed to look to his masters. This, too, is mortal nature. If you put someone in a position where they are not allowed to look too intelligent or wise, and then take them out of it. There is momentum, but a finite momentum, and it is hard to guess how far that momentum will last. Keltham has now guessed, and then been shown, what happens when he tries to touch magic, on four different occasions. He's burned his remaining greater detect magic for the day on watching what happens when other people interact with spells above scaffolds. 
though he can't hold his concentration on greater detect magic while trying his own magical manipulations. And before his spell ran out, he also took another look at people catching cantrips. He's not forming solid perceptual generalizations about what does what. But he's ever played hyperdimensional arcade games with lots of hidden information and subtlety. I get the impression that Detect Magic is not showing all of the latent information, hidden facts, about what goes on with magical structures, like two magical configurations that look the same to me in the illusion you're showing me could have other different facts about them, not visible in the illusion, not visible in the detection spell, which would change how the spell reacted when I touched it. In particular, I touched it what I thought was the same way twice, and even though it seemed to have reset to the same starting point both times, it reacted pretty differently. Maybe I touched it differently, which could be true, obviously, but going on general behaviors and my intuitive sense of the pattern, I think that Something changed in the hidden background. Does that sound right? Maybe, says Meritzel. Magic is deterministic, but the illusion probably isn't conveying enough to fully determine it. If I touch it, it'll do what I want every time, for something as simple as a cantrip. But I don't know what additional features of the situation I might be paying attention to that I'm not properly putting in the illusion. For the kind of spell where it won't do what I want every time... I'd be failing to pay attention to its momentum properly, or failing to pay attention to the viscosity it gets from having been recently manipulated, or failing to track an interaction it's having with other nearby magic. But cantrips are so easy that you don't have to account for all of that. Deterministic and fully visible are different concepts, and I maybe shouldn't have asked about them together. Even if the parts I can't see are the same, and I actually am touching them differently— or those other parts are just reacting to changing things like viscosity. Are there parts I can't see in the information here? I mean, even changes of viscosity from having been recently manipulated implies there's a current viscosity state that isn't being shown. Are there a lot of other facts that can be true about it? Hidden information? He uses the baseline term because he just can't stand it. Latent variables that I'm not seeing. There are parts you can't see, yes. You have to infer their state, though for a cantrip you don't have to infer it very precisely. Keltham is a very self-disciplined person who would not set anything on fire right now, even if he had the economic magic to do that, without buying a flamethrower. I realize this may not be the usual order in which these things are taught to children, but can I just have a quick review of all the known equations, or even rules of thumb, governing all the properties that magic actually has? Has any progress been made on getting a copy of any of the books like Principles of Spell Design, I think was one of them, that would have information like that? They can try, but all the known rules of thumb are not quick, and all the equations are not known. Principles of Spell Design lays out all of the heuristics you can use, but you still usually fail when designing spells with all of those in mind. It's speculated that gods can see all the hidden properties exactly as clearly as the visible properties. And that's why it's not hard for gods to design spells. They launch into all the known rules of thumb, usually with the caveat that casting cantrips doesn't actually require this. You can think of one aspect of magic as lagging the visible aspects like so, requiring more energy to move and moving more slowly when it does, but also requiring more energy to stop. 
You can think of another as reacting badly to close contact with itself and resisting spell structures like such or such, which is why no spells have structures like that. You can think of this other thing as possible to tug into alignment only by sort of jiggling the spell, and you can tell you've got it when you don't get any reverberations when you do this. And people have, of course, tried hyperdimensional representations that capture all that. But it's hard, and usually less useful to learn than the heuristics if you aren't specifically doing spell design. And none of them have arrived at equations that, if solved for, let you invent spells, despite having headbands and plenty of motivation. It's understood that the number of ways magic interacts with itself is just very, very large for high-circle spells. And it's not reducible complexity. It is. Someone ventures, sort of like the thing Keltham said, about how knowing how objects move doesn't let you catch them in the air. No one has found principles of spell design yet. Ione Sala has now realized two things. First, she knows where there's a copy, several copies, in fact, of Principles of Spell Design in the Ostenso Wizard Academy's library. Second, her oracle's curse allows her to borrow copies of non-magical books in general circulation from libraries. Ione has already visited and spent time reading inside, if she's been inside the part of the library that has those books. Though it's not teleportation, and she can't use it to write messages back. The books just temporarily disappear from their current libraries, and temporary copies of them get created in her own library. She thinks she can do five books per day at the current power. Circle? Is it a thing that has circles? Of her oracle's curse, and a borrow lasts for a day unless she expends one use on renewing it. Ione has the best curse ever. It's tempting to imagine that Nethys did that because she would have wanted it. But that's pathetic. Nethys isn't a good god who would be thinking like that, even if Good's own propaganda was true. If she has this curse, she's meant to use it for Nethys's benefit, which, so far as Ione can possibly guess, means using it to push Keltham's research forwards. This is also going to make her a lot harder to replace with an imposter that can fool Keltham. But that is not why she is doing this. She is not trying to make Chelish Security's life more difficult for her own benefit. Her god has given her an ability which is clearly meant to be used for the benefit of this important Chelish project that Cheliax is spending lots of money on, and she is only going to use it for that. She is completely not going to argue if Cheliax tells her to pretend that a book isn't there or can't be retrieved. In fact, She's going to lie to Keltham and say there's sometimes unpredictable exceptions in which books she can get, specifically so Cheliax can order her not to get something and she'll have an excuse. She is a very good and obedient oracle of Nethys, who doesn't want Chelish security to gouge her eye out again. It was very unpleasant, and Ione definitely feels very scared and threatened by that, even if they can't destroy her the way Nethys can. Even Nethys is clearly being somewhat cooperative, since the inability to write any messages back is probably there to reassure Chelish security against information leaking out that way. But it also wouldn't be the best possible service to Nethys to ask Chelish security's permission to reveal this ability. They might say no, and that is clearly not Nethys's will here. Keltham, wait a second, Ione says out loud. 
Let me write you a note about something. She starts to scribble. I have a secret ability to borrow up to five ordinary books for a day each unless renewed, if they're in a part of a library that I've been to. Though they're just temporary copies, you can't write things in them permanently, and there are weird exceptions about which books it works on. I think for a project this important, I'll accept if the other girls get suspicious I can do it, or even if you just want me to announce outright that I had a secret like that. Do you want me to get you Principles of Spell Design from the Ostenso Academy Library? Is security stopping her? She's really sorry about talking to Keltham first like that. She really is. She didn't do it to make their lives harder. But she doesn't believe that Nethys would want her to offer Chelish security a veto on using her powers to help this important Chelish project at all, which is how Nethys obviously intends them to be used, for Cheliax's benefit. Nethys even made it not involve real teleportation. There could be a pact about this, between Nethys and Asmodeus for all they know. Nethys obviously has an interest in Asmodeus succeeding here, and she's very happy to not retrieve particular books in the future if Chelish security says so. And she even lied to Keltham about that, like a good obedient Nethys oracle should, without anybody needing to tell her that. Please don't hurt her. Security is not stopping her, though if a halfling were to stab her, they would not be sorry, just saying. Keltham gets the note. Keltham reads the note. Keltham stares into the air for several seconds. Yes, please, Keltham says. This is just so reminiscent of an arrow larp where the potential romantic interests all have special powers, and Keltham accidentally hit on this girl's unlock condition unreasonably early, and now she's going along with the script and revealing some of her hidden story and offering him the scripted level of in-game abilities and sexual access. Not that Keltham has ever had anything remotely like the money to pay for sex work on that level, of course, and he's not the sort to read the scripts for LARPs he's too poor to play as the protagonist. But it's such a trope to subvert and parody that it's spawned entire massive genres of secondary literature, some of which has become really good and famous and a topic of widespread discussion in its own right. To the point that people who've never read a summary of a novel deconstructing the storylines of actual scripted long-term multiplayer sex work Nonetheless, know all about the tropes for capability harems. Ione walks to the other room of the library. Why is there a spring in her step? There should not be a spring in her step. She should be terrified right now. Borrows principles of spell design from the Ostenso Academy Library, brings it back, hands it to Keltham, and quietly sits down again. She's at least managing not to smile. She really would not blame security for killing her on the spot if she looked the slightest bit smug right now. Carissa walks in. She looks, well, to untrained eyes, perfectly normal, perhaps like she spent slightly more time than usual on her hair, to chelish eyes like she went to hell and back, which does happen sometimes. Dis occasionally extends an invitation to the living for its own reasons. By the time she's walked into view of Keltham and sat down, she has it under control. Mostly. And you want page 10, says Meritzel, who is going to be daunted by none of this. They're all looking at Ione. Why are they all looking at Ione? Carissa prefers not to be looked at, all things considered, but she really expected to be looked at at this point. She looks at Ione, too, in case whatever they're all looking at is actually evident. There's a forbiddance up, says Peranza, 
trying really hard to sound confused rather than angry. Ione smiles at Peranza. Oh God, she shouldn't have done that. Nethys is going to smite her now. Page 10 and some more on page 38, I think, says Meritzel somewhat loudly. Thanks, Ione. Meritzel, Keltham says, and reads as directed. He is a stern soul and can worry later about whether or not he's now living inside a Walker novel. Ione is not saying anything to anyone, unless they ask her explicit questions and admit to everyone else how much less they know than Ione, in which case Ione will still not tell them. Or maybe she'll tell them something true that makes them be even more confused, or just lie. It's hard to decide when you have so many tasty options. No one asks Ione any questions, though, Asmodia attempts to read her mind. The book has an orderly list of heuristics for telling what the unobservable dimensions of magic are doing. Most of their activities that you have to worry about for low-circle spells are being attracted or repelled by other magic nearby them, or having momentum of their own once tugged on indirectly by tugging on an observable dimension. The strongly recommended way to handle this, as a new wizard, is to practice with small tweaks until you get a feel for it. Some people report success trying to imagine and explicitly track what the other dimensions are doing, but most don't, and it becomes practically impossible to do a fully encompassing version of as you approach higher circle spells. There are a couple interactions to explicitly track, starting at first circle. They are such and such. There are twice as many at second circle. Ionisala makes her will save, glances to see if Keltham is looking, and then flashes a kindly smile at the girl with half her own combined caster circles. Asmodia is lucky she failed so miserably. Her feeble mind would probably crumble if she succeeded in peeking into the thoughts of an oracle of Nethys. She's going to get piled under later, and it's going to last for a while. She may as well live it up briefly now. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.